0: You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Well, it's good to see you guys. It's awesome to be here with you. Um, just want to say before we jump in, we're in Luke chapter 10 this morning. And so if you have a Bible and want to turn there, it might help you to look at it, Luke chapter 10. And uh, we'll kind of read it as we go. But just wanted to say, I am here, one, because I love to preach, love to teach, but I'm, I'm here maybe more, more than any of that because uh, Jimmy, who was just leading us, um, is, a, is an old and dear friend. I was his youth pastor back in the day uh, when we were both children once. And, uh, but uh, I, I would say, and if you know Jimmy, you know this isn't an exaggeration, I would say, um, one of the great gifts from God in my life has been able to watch him grow into the man he is now spiritually and to be able to be part of his story. It's one of the great joys of, of, of life with Jesus. John the Apostle said it, I have no greater joy than watching my children walk in the truth. And so it's been a joy for me to see who Jimmy's become and what he's doing and the leadership of this church. It's just been amazing. So I uh, was getting to know Rodney, your pastor, but I've gotten calls from people I love that have told me about what Rodney has invested in their life and taught them. So it was an easy yes for me to come here and celebrate uh, Rodney and Jimmy and your church. So I just wanted to honor your pastors and say I'm really grateful to be here in their midst. So amen? Sound good? Yeah? You guys fans of Rodney, Jimmy, your pastors? You can applaud here if you want. It's up to you uh, how how alive you're feeling at 1115. I mean, you're the 1115. You've had coffee already. Come on, folks. All right, but um, let me pray for us and we'll jump into our text this morning. God, thanks for a few minutes around your word. Uh, Help us now to understand it. And so quicken our minds, God, that that we get it, what you're saying. But I pray, God, that it wouldn't just be grabbing some new information. We would understand what you're saying about what you're like and what you like. And then I pray, God, you would give us a picture of our own lives. And the implications of who you are and what you're like would change who we are tomorrow at work and in our homes and in the relationships that we're in. And so, God, I'm asking for life change today, nothing less than that. I want us to be different people, and I can't produce that. And so we're asking you to. And I just want to invite you guys, if you're willing, to take a minute and you ask him. uh, Just pray and say, Lord, please teach me something right now. Uh, And then if you would, please pray for me, that the Lord will use me and I'd be helpful to you. Well, Father, we love you and we trust you. Use this time and we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the data is in that there is a severe shortage of kindness in the world today. Now, I imagine many of you know that, but just so I can give you the stats on it, the PR firm Weber Shandwick releases an annual report on civility in America. And what they found, according to their most recent data, is nine out of 10 Americans would say civility is at an all-time low and that a lack of kindness is reaching epidemic proportions. But I would guess many of you know that. I mean, all you have to do is look at the news and hear the way we talk to each other about political issues, about social issues, religious issues, the increasing hostility in our world today that's growing. It's interesting, I-, I talked a year ago to a group of people and I told them my fear is that incivility so quickly becomes hostility. But the weird thing is I don't even have to say that anymore. That was a year ago. Now we see it every day. You saw it in Middlebury University not that long ago. Uh, Man was invited to speak, a liberal group on campus didn't like the message that he was going to share, so as he got on stage, they began to shout him down, and then as he fled to his car, they attacked his car, injuring a female professor on campus and sending her to the hospital, because I didn't like what you might say. And yet on the same side, you go, oh, that's those crazy liberals. But I got to do the chapel for Texas A&M's football team. And so I was down doing chapel with the team, went with them onto the field at Auburn University, unbelievable, down on the field with the team, living the dream, go Aggies, fight Auburn. And as I'm walking into the uh, locker room with them during halftime, we ran under the tunnel to the sound of someone screaming racial slurs at the team while people just kind of sat by and ate popcorn. Watching that happen. And I'll talk to people and go, well, that doesn't really happen. Really? Does it not? And so you see people on all kinds of different issues in our country today are getting more and more hostile in the way we talk to each other. And you've seen it in some of your friends, the way we can speak to one another online the way we can talk to another human being to comment about, I can't believe they hold that political view, therefore they are not to be respected or spoken to with dignity. And so we've gotten into an environment where we are increasingly more hostile to one another and the news loves it because it feeds the news cycle because our fear motivates us and our fear makes us angry against the other. And so the news will constantly play up the us versus them, whoever the us is and whoever the them may be. So I had a friend the other day that was, uh, it was the other day, it was a little longer ago, but he's frequently asked to speak uh, on major news outlets about Christian issues. And when the movie Noah came out, he was called by a major media outlet, I won't name, but they called him and said, what are your thoughts on the new Mo- Noah movie? And he said, it's biblically inaccurate, but we kind of expected that. Uh, but if it gets people talking about the Bible, that's a win for us. And then they asked him, but are you outraged about it and he said uh, no i just told you how i felt about it and then they asked him can you be outraged by tomorrow and when he said no i guarantee you they just hung up and called the next person because outrage sells because we'll find the people that scream our point of view the loudest and it's easy to demonize the other and we feel a strength in bolstering our views and condemning others. And our world is beginning to feed on hostility. And I don't know about you, but I'm getting weary of it. I've gotten to the point where I'm like, I can't even open the news first thing in the morning without just thinking, babe, it's time to move to Montana. We're gonna pack up the kids and move into the woods, just live off the land, just berries and fruit and, uh, and fish and then we'll churn our own butter and just get away from all these people. Because there's so much anger in our culture today. And you go, well, not me. Well, I just got to pick the right issue because there's an us that we love and there's a them that we don't. And on and on, our culture is going to keep picking at it and keep picking at it. That's the world we're in today of, man, it's got to be red versus blue, liberal versus conservative, Republican versus Democrat, right? It's got to be pro-choice versus pro-life, LGBT versus Christian community, country music people versus people with taste, CrossFit people (laughs) versus normal humans. And on and on it goes. And the reality is, it's easy to tell ourselves, man, we're just loving people, provided that the people we love fit a certain criteria. But if you're in the thems, it's easy for me to judge you and condemn you, right? And so that's the world we live in today. And uh, we could go on and on about that, but that's not that much fun. So I wanna do something here. I wanna press pause on our drama and I wanna pick up somebody else's drama. Because the truth is, we can go back into the Bible and you see Jesus trafficked in a day where there was a lot of political and religious and ethnic tension. And he trafficked in that every day. And so I wanna take a moment, we're looking at Jesus, where Jesus is gonna walk into a political, religious, ethnic, tense moment. And I wanna see how Jesus navigated it because the people of Jesus are meant to do it in the same way. And we're looking at a text in Luke chapter 10, where Jesus is going to tell a story. He's going to tell a parable. And it's one you're probably familiar with, but here's the thing you'll miss if you just go, I've already heard this parable. Parables were stories Jesus told to a certain group of people at a certain place. And you don't appreciate the drama of the story if you don't appreciate the drama in which he told the story. And so we got to look at who was he talking to, and what's going on here. And as we do it, I think we're going to begin, Lord willing, to see ourselves, and it's going to affect who we are when we walk out of these doors in a little bit. But as you look at Luke chapter 10, in verse 25, the drama begins as Jesus walks into this town, and you hear it in the first few words that Luke says. He begins with, "And behold, a lawyer," and he says it that way because you know the drama's already starting. Behold, a lawyer. Because back then, lawyer didn't, it didn't necessarily mean what we would think when we think lawyer. Uh, that's Luke's word, word. Other gospel writers say scribe or expert in the law. This guy was a Pharisee. And to be a Pharisee in the Bible, a Pharisee is not a job. It's, uh, it's a ideology. Like, like you have in a political party. You can belong to a political party, but that's not your job. You're a plumber or whatever. But you belong to an, uh, an ideological group. And a Pharisee were a group of people that believed the Bible's the word of God It should be interpreted uh, within certain parameters and applied to your life. None of those are bad things. But as they began to interpret it, they say, it must be understood this way and you must conform to our way. And they found great comfort in having control. This is the way it's supposed to be. This is the way the world is supposed to work. This is what people are supposed to do. So get on my level. That's kind of how they worked. And this guy was not just a Pharisee. He was a lawyer, which means it was also his profession. He was a professional Pharisee. His job was to tell people this is what the law says and this is what you're supposed to do to live in it according to my interpretation of it. And that was his way, right? And so the tension of that in this moment is because the biggest problem for a Pharisee in particular, a lawyer in that day was Jesus because he kept messing with them. We have a way, we have a structure, fit into it. And he shows up on the scene and he's teaching the law, but he keeps saying, you have heard it said, but I say to you, and he'll say something else. Which to them, they're like, stop doing that. We have a way, fit our way. And he keeps blowing it up. And when we get to this moment in Luke, they're just irritated by him. They're like, I don't know why he keeps breaking our rules. Not long from now, they're gonna commit to destroy him. You're different than me and you're different enough that I hate you and want you to go away that's going to be their mentality. But here, he's an irritant. And as he shows up in this world, just in those first few words, behold, a lawyer, Luke has already given us tension, right? And yet, as the verse continues, it says, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, to give you a context, this this encounter was probably public right? Because Jesus would travel to villages and preach. And that was a common thing in that day for a traveling teacher or traveling miracle worker to show up in your village. And as that person came, they would want to share a message or want to do something amazing. And so what would happen is the religious leadership of your village would go out to meet that person. And then they would all sit and have a dialogue. And the truth was, often they would do it outdoors so the people of the village could gather around and listen. Because in a day without TV, this was great entertainment, right? Or you would do it at a house that was big and open so people could crowd around because it was educational and entertaining for the people. And typically it would be a conversation and sometimes it could be friendly, but in this culture, honor was a high priority. And honor was also seen as a quantifiable entity, meaning you could gain or lose it and there was only so much honor in the world. So often what would happen in these exchanges was it would become a bit of a debate, right? Sort of a verbal MMA match, right? that a teacher would come and he would begin to talk and they would begin to dialogue and they'd go back and forth and it'd become a sparring match and whoever could win would get more honor from the other person, right? And so it's interesting in this moment, Jesus was probably sitting talking to these men and then it says, the lawyer, behold, stood up. Now, some people say that could be a sign of respect. But as you see later, you see, it says to put him to the test, that this was a challenge, (laughs) that they're sitting there talking and these religious leaders are irritated by Jesus. And finally, one of them stands up. And he says, well, I have a question. And everybody in that moment knew when he stood up, this was a challenge. This was pulling off the glove and slapping his face, right? Right? This was locking the cage for a cage match. So if you were in that village, this guy's like, hey, I got a question. You were like, ooh, all right, here it goes, right? Some guy in the back's pulling up a chalkboard, placing bets All right, You're getting money. I got money on the guy in the blue dress, right? And you're kind of going through that. Man, you're gonna see a battle about to break out, right? Because this guy stands up and he says, I'm gonna put Jesus to the test. And so he asks this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But you have to understand, he's not asking that out of a place of need in his soul. He's not coming to Jesus the way some of you are coming to church today. Some of you came here because you want to know the way I'm doing life isn't working and I need life. And if God has answers for me, I want it. And that's a beautiful place to be. How do I get eternal life? How do I get life with God? Where does it come from? You're asking that in a sincere, heartfelt way. This guy isn't. It says he stood up to test him. He's testing Jesus. I don't know that I trust you. I've had this happen to me. I remember when I first came as director of Breakaway on the campus of a and I was invited by a student group to preach. And I remember I showed up at the student group and the guy who led it came up to me, which is common. We have a little conversation and then I go preach. He comes up to me and he was about 19. And he said, hey, sit down. And I sat down and he goes, explain to me the gospel. And I'm like, um, like, what, uh, what, do you, like what do you mean? Like you're just the leader of this Christian organization. I kind of assumed he was a Christian. And he was like, no, I, I want to hear you say it. And I realized, Oh, he doesn't think I know what I'm talking about, right? And, and a couple of years later, he confirmed it. He said, oh yeah, I was trying to test you. And you're like, oh great, you're just like a Pharisee. That's awesome. So um, <laughs> that's what's going on here. This guy's not in a search for truth. This guy's in a search for honor. And I can get it by being right because being right feels good, right? We like it. And so this guy goes, I can get one over on this guy. And so he challenges Jesus and he does it in a way that was common in that day. What you would do was you would ask a big general question. And this is a big general question. Rabbis have been debating this for over 400 years, right? This isn't like a, well, that's novel. This was the start of a fight. You would ask a big general question and then Jesus was supposed to give a big general answer. And then he would ask a more specific question. And Jesus would give a more specific answer. And then he would ask a more specific question. Jesus would give a more specific answer. Then they would get to a place where they disagree and fight, 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 until someone had better arguments, understood their position better, could turn a phrase better, got the crowd all riled, and won the honor, right? That's what this was supposed to be. So this guy starts the fight. So I got a question for you. What must I do to inherit eternal life, right? That's the question. And Jesus responds in verse 26. What's written in the law? How do you read it? Did you see what Jesus just did? He's supposed to give a general answer. What does he give? He gives a question, right? So the guy who's known for breaking the rules just broke all the debate rules, right? So now you're really irritated, right? That he's asking a question is a question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, you're a lawyer. You tell me. So that's annoying, but the guy wants to get back in the game, So he does it, and Jesus leads him a bit. Jesus says, how do you read it? What Jesus is saying there is, don't tell me what you think, quote a text. You tell me what the Bible says about how to get eternal life. And so in verse 27, the guy answers. It says, he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. What he does is he takes Deuteronomy chapter six, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, which is part of the Shema. They would recite it twice a day and he combines it with Leviticus 19. Leviticus is about how to live as a culture, and he summarizes Leviticus by saying, love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. So the guy takes Deuteronomy 6, love God with your entire being, Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself, and he puts them together and says, I think this is what you must do, love God and love people. That's the whole summation of the law. And Jesus says, you're right. Great answer. Strong answer. Jesus will give this answer when he's asked a similar question, right? And so the guy gives a strong answer and there was Jewish precedent for it. And so Jesus says, you're right, you've answered correctly. Now, before we continue in the story, let me be clear on this. Some of you are maybe a little nervous by this. You're like, wait a minute. I thought we received eternal life by grace alone from God through faith. This sounds like I'm supposed to do something to get eternal life. That doesn't sound like this. Why is Jesus quoting the gospel wrong? Jesus is not wrong. What is Faith. Is faith just understanding truths about who God is? No, right? Is faith believing certain facts about God and Jesus is the son of God? No, So faith isn't just, I believe these facts. That's not what faith is, right? The devil believes true things about God. The devil knows more about Jesus than you and he has accurate information and he believes it. The devil believes Jesus Christ is the son of God, believes Jesus died for your sin. The devil believes all that. But I think most of us would agree, even if you're not really from a spiritual background, the devil's probably not a Christian, right? <laughs> so if he does all that, then what, what truly does save you? What, what's the difference between you and the devil? That's one of the questions from this morning, right? Is he can believe all that, but he can't see it as lovely. He can't treasure a God who would come for us. Jesus Christ, who would lay down his life for us. That's the difference. Love for God is faith. It's saying, My whole mind, heart, body is yours. I love you because you first loved me. I embrace you because you came from me. And then, all throughout the Bible, you'll see it. John said it in 1 John Beloved, love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves knows God and has been born of God. When you love God, it becomes love for people. Love embraced becomes love extended. That's the normal Christian experience. Faith works itself out through love is what Paul will tell the Galatians. And so he's quoting something that is true. And so Jesus says, you've answered correctly. He's right. But then Jesus says, do that and you'll live. So now look at the situation Jesus just put this lawyer in. What's the lawyer's goal? Win a fight, get some honor, fight for my political beliefs until I beat down the other side into submission, right? What does he do? What must I do to gain eternal life? You tell me. Okay, so he keeps playing the game. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus goes, great, do that. Now what's he supposed to do? Uh... I could say, well, I have, but the problem is they're in his village, right? So if he says that, what's gonna to happen to the crowd? They're gonna go, eh, does Bobby love you as much as he loves himself? I don't feel like he loves me as much as he loves himself, right, like, so if the goal is to get honor, that's not really gonna work, you know? So like, oops. But he can also say, well, I do need to try to do that. I'll give it my best shot, thank you. But what happens? you still lose, right? So Jesus is like, checkmate, son, like Jesus has got him. How do you get out of there and save face? You gotta find a detail. You gotta get specific. You gotta get back into the debate world. So he does. He says, well, then who exactly is my neighbor? And as you notice in the text, it says seeking to justify himself. Justify himself to who? To all these people in his tribe. How do I show them I'm, I'm legit? And justifying himself, he says, who is my neighbor? Now, rabbis had already answered this question. Who is your neighbor? Unequivocally to the Jewish people, it's the Jews. The Jewish people, right? And so there were debates on this. If, if, a, if a foreigner who holds a different set of political de- beliefs than us, someone who believes abhorrent things that are offensive to us and our God, if that person is drowning, you're not obligated to help them. Let their people help them. And so... The expected answer from Jesus is the Jewish people. And so this is a smart thing the guy did. He's going to say, who is my neighbor? Jesus is going to say, the Jewish people. And he's going to say, I love the Jewish people. And the crowd will go, he does love Jewish people. And then you go, ah, well, at least it's a net zero in this game. Let's all go have lunch. And he got out of it alive. And so he asks a specific question, who then is my neighbor? Jesus is supposed to give a specific answer. But what does Jesus do? Verse 30. And Jesus replied, no man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He starts telling a story. He just won't follow the rules, right? And so if you're Jewish, you're irritated because he keeps breaking the rules, but you're also Semitic and you just love stories. All right, so you're fascinated, right? (laughs) You don't have a TV, here it goes. You're like, okay, what's gonna happen to this guy? And Jesus starts telling a story. A man, and he uses a generic term for a man, was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who's tripped him and beat him in departing, leaving him half dead. So Jesus used the very generic term for man. And they say he was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Down, because that's, that's like a over 1,500 feet drop in elevation from Jerusalem to Jericho. So you don't go straight down when it's that far. You do switchbacks. And switchbacks means there's big curves in the road, which means there's great places to hide. And so when Jesus tells a story, he always puts kind of a shocking twist in it. The fact that this guy got robbed is not the shocking twist. This road is a great place to get yourself robbed because people can hide there. So I don't have time to read it all to you. There's all kinds of ancient literature about how this road is a great place to get robbed. Even in the book of Joshua, they mention one of the passes in this road and call it the pass of blood. Not necessarily the place you take the kids to vacation. All right, so it's a dangerous place. So when Jesus says, this guy was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he got robbed, they aren't like, what? That would be like me saying, a guy went into a bar and had a beer. You wouldn't go, he did what? Like you kind of expect it. And so Jesus is like, the guy's on that road, he got robbed. And they're like, yeah, that, okay, yeah, shouldn't be on that road. Right? But as Jesus continues the story, it says they stripped him and they beat him, leaving him half dead. Right? Now the Jewish people had like five different variations of dead. You could kind of narrow it down to three. You've got alive, right? And you've got all dead. And then in the middle, you have mostly dead, right? Which means partially alive, right? I mean, if you're all dead, there's only one thing to do, right? Go through his pockets and look for loose change. uh, (laughs) No, that's a quote from a movie. I don't really mean that. But uh, half dead means he's not dead yet. But what does it mean? It means he's unconscious. He's unconscious. So, So catch the picture Jesus just painted. What was the question? The question was, who's my neighbor? And Jesus says, well, let me tell you about a man. Use a generic term for a man. Don't know anything about him other than he's male. And when he got beaten, he got stripped. Why is that valuable? Well, because back then, when you wore an outfit, it was embroidered and made by your people, your tribe. And so you got tipped off by what you wore. We're still kind of like that, right? If I said a guy had big cowboy boots on and a pearl snap shirt and a 10-gallon hat, you wouldn't go, is he from New York? <laughs> you kind of guess where he's from. Look around here, and I can tell kind of what tribe you move in, right? We tend to wear clothes that let people know where we fit on the spectrum, right? But these guys are stripped. Can't see him. Can't figure out what political party he's on. Can't figure out what group he's into. So, what other way can you tell where somebody's from? You listen to him talk, catch an accent, hear what he cares about. It's interesting. You know, professor who taught this text to us, he used this illustration and I loved it. He said, if I was in New York and went to go see the Yankees play, he said, and I decided to buy, and he called it a cylindrical meat product. He says, if I'm in the Bronx, what do I order? He says, I order a hot dog. Give me a hot dog. He said, if I'm in Chicago at Wrigley Field, what do I order? I order a hat tag. Give me a hat tag. He said, but if I'm down in Arlington, what do I order? Hot dog. With some mustard. You can tell where somebody's from if you can listen to him talk. That's how people knew Jesus' disciples, right? And they said, Weren't you with Jesus? No, I wasn't with him. Well, you sound like a Galilean, so you probably were. And so look at what Jesus has done generic man, stripped of all external markings, and you can't hear him talk. This is like a CSI episode. Who is my neighbor? I don't know! I don't know anything about him! (laughs) What's gonna happen? Well, in verse 31, now by chance, oh, by chance, a priest was going down the road. Thank God, because this guy's half dead. Here comes somebody to the rescue. But then it says, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, some people look at that and they go, okay, why would the priest do that? Why would a holy man pass by? Well, he could have been scared. Victim in a high crime area. I'm out of here. Could have been worried about ceremonial cleanliness, right? I'm ritually clean. And a dead body would make me unclean. A Gentile would make me unclean. So I don't want to be seen associating with those kind of people because the true bloods in my camp would condemn me for being seen with them. Or it could be that he's just consistent with the human impulse. So I read an article the other day, and I'm not going to quote the article to you because it's too disturbing, but I'll read the title the title was Police Video Shows at Least 10 Witnesses Ignoring Women's Cries for Help During Sexual Assault. It went on for 90 minutes. And so as much as we like to imagine ourselves the hero when the world is hemorrhaging in pain, I think if we're honest, when the world's blowing up, most people in the world say those are not my people, so it's not my problem. Let their country figure it out. Let their kind help them. Let that person deal with it. They're not my people. They're not my problem. And so the priest passes by. Levite goes by next. It says, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. Did they come separately separately? Maybe, but leaving the temple, you had a priest walking and the Levite was essentially a priest's assistant. And so back in that day, the man of honor would walk out front. And so the Levite's probably tailing right behind the guy. And it says he came up on him. The priest, if it was about ceremonial cleanliness, needed to stay about six feet away from that body. The Levite didn't need to. So it sounds like from the verbiage that he kind of came up and looked and then realized, I don't need to get into that. I don't want the implications of being involved. And so you see these two men walk by, and if you're the audience, you're tracking with it, and you're going, a priest, our highest holy man, just walked by. A Levite, his assistant, walks by. Who's gonna go by next? Who's the next person in line? Priest, Levite, who would be next? Good Jewish layperson, right? I'd be like, well, the lead pastor walked past him. Worship leader walked past him. Then one of the deacons stepped up was the picture of Christ. And you'll be like, I knew we were, right? Is that what happens? No, verse 33, Jesus says, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was and when he saw him, had compassion. But a Samaritan, this is the twist because he picked a group of people that Jewish people could not hate more. Because it wasn't just, oh, you're different and difference bad. It's that when the Jewish people were taken away in captivity by the Assyrians, some stayed in the region and intermingled and married with the enemy. And so they saw them as a bastardization of our ethnic pure blood. And then they developed a religion that was distorted. And so they said, you're religious distortion. And you're a political group we will not recognize. Politically, you're the other. Ethic- ethnically, you're the other, Right? Religiously, you're the other. We hate you. And Jesus picks that person as the hero in the story. You want to get a sense of how this plays out? It would be like if I showed up at the Republican National Convention and told this amazing story about what a hero Hillary Clinton is, what a gift she is to this world. Or if I showed up at the local RNC, told a great story about a lesbian doing amazing work? Or if I showed up at a civil rights rally and said, I got a brother here from the Klan that has some ideas he'd like to share? How would that go over? How would any of that play out? That's what Jesus does. He picks the person that you would instantly feel offended by and says, that's the person that came. Not to be the neighbor that's loved, how does he come? He comes in a way the other two did not with compassion and he had compassion. And then Jesus narrows down the story and he begins to slow it down. And it says, and he went to him. And he bound up his wounds. He ripped his own clothes to bind up the guy's bloody wounds. He poured oil and wine on him, gave of his resources to help that man in need. He set him on his own animal. I will inconvenience myself for the sake of your benefit. And I brought them to the inn. And then it says, and he took care of him. And the next day he left. That means he canceled his plans and stayed all night at this inn to be by this man's bedside, to care for him, to keep him alive. And then when he left, he paid the innkeeper in advance, thereby binding him legally to care for this man till I could get back and continue caring for him. So Jesus' point in all that is to slow that down and to show them compassion. Say, this is what compassion looks like. Inconvenience for the sake of the other. And then Jesus asks the question, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man? And I love the way Jesus twisted it. He said, stop trying to analyze who is my neighbor that I can decide who I'm obligated to be nice to. Jesus turns it and says, no, which person was neighborly? And the lawyer can't even say Samaritan. He says, the one that showed mercy. And Jesus said, yeah, do that. Do that. Be that. So why do I talk about this? Why pick this uh, sermon to even bring here? It's not because I'm accusing you of not loving people that are different than you. I'm just saying the world is growing increasingly hostile. It's us versus them. That's the world we live in. And it's easy for us when you get into the right category to identify the thems. But what Jesus is challenging his people to do is to be people of compassion and compassion extends to everybody. Love engages everybody across religious spheres across political spheres, across ethnic boundaries. I don't have to agree with what you agree with. I don't have to like what you propose, but do I have love sufficient to spill the banks of my own tribe into yours? That's what we're called to because that's what God did for us. While we were enemies, Christ came to us and now he's calling his people, will you be like me? Will you extend out in the way I did and extend out beyond your normal boundaries? beyond what's comfortable for you. Are you willing to do that? Because that's what God's love does. It extends beyond our natural boundaries. His love spills past acquaintance right on into enemy, And we like to quote that, love your enemies, but it's different when you're called to actually do it. I remember for me, when this first landed on me when I was in high school, for me, I remember there was a kid in high school that was enormous. Just a mountain of a human being and angry, just, just an angry kid. He used to, like, he'd wear spikes all over him in big combat boots. And he would just march down the hall like this. He's the only guy I ever saw pick up a human being and throw them in a trash can. Like, that's the kind of thing, like, you see in, like, mo- like 80s movies or something. You know what I mean? But this little freshman kid was in his way. That was the only offense. And he just was like, through him. And you're like, oh, my gosh, why such violence, Brent? You know, like, he was crazy. So I did what every other good kid did do. You avoid him and you talk bad about him to your friends, right? That's a good Christian thing to do. You whisper, right? And so I remember a Christian concert was coming to town. And so a guy told me about it and I was excited because I was a Christian, good Christian concerts come, and listen to some good Christian music. So I did what every good Christian did when a good Christian concert with good Christian music came. I went and invite all my good Christian friends. So a bunch of good Christian people go to this good Christian concert and listen to good Christian music and have a good old Christian time. That's what we we're planning on doing. So you'll never guess my shock when I walked in and there's Brent. And he's like, hey man. And I'm like, hey man, are you lost? Is there like a Slayer concert nearby? Like, What are you doing here? And I remember looking at me, and he was like, Eric invited me. And he said, man, I had no idea anything like this existed. He said, and he's telling me about Jesus and all this stuff. And he said, no, I don't know any of this stuff. He said, and man, I'm just so glad I'm here. And I remember that broke my heart because my MO was to judge and condemn and dismiss you for being the other. And God's heart is to reach out across those boundaries, that compassion moves into action, and it engages everybody. It doesn't just tolerate. Christians are called to more than that, that's the world. We're supposed to tolerate each other. Do you know what tolerate means? Look it up in the dictionary. It means to be comfortable with the existence of the other. Does that sound like a world you wanna live in? I just try to be comfortable with the fact you exist. Wow, what a great place. How do I join here? No, love engages, it gets off the horse. It moves towards them. It sees the pain of the other as my call into action, right? That's what it does. So in the early church, little baby girls were not viewed as valuable. So it was permissible in Roman society. If you had a little baby girl, she was viewed as an absorption of wealth. You would take that baby and lay her out on the street to die from exposure or for someone to pick them up and to pimp them in a brothel. It's normal in Roman society. The Christian abhorred that because they said that little girl has dignity because she's in the image of our God. So they wrote all these blogs about how much Rome sucks and they would sit around in corners and be like, can you believe what the Romans are doing? I can't believe it. Oh my God, did you see that person had a Roman bumper sticker the other day? That's what they did. Is that what they did? No, I'll tell you what they did. They said, if you don't want those baby girls, we'll take them. And if you were to visit a gathering like this in the early church, you would be met by the singing of the voices of little girls, right? And that's how the early church changed a culture. When they were being murdered by the Romans because of their belief in Jesus, plagues would break out in cities. And when a plague breaks out in a city, sometimes a third, sometimes two thirds of the people in that city die. So when a plague breaks out, you break out. That's what you do you get the heck out of there. And if you have to leave your wife or your kids or your friends, whatever, I wanna live. So when a plague broke out, everyone would leave except the Christian because the Christian said, this person has dignity and if it costs my life to care for their life, I'm gonna give it because that's what Jesus did for me. And Rome changed because of a love like that. And that's what we're called to to look at this world that clenches its teeth and fist and to say, I will not clench mine back, but I will come with bandages and oil and wine and compassion. That's how I will come into this world. We don't have to agree on everything, but I will love because God loved me and because I'm convinced that love precedes life change. It's compassion that moved him to action, and it's compassion that led to salvation. That's what changed that man's life was compassion. What's gonna change our culture? Hating back? Hitting back? No. It's going to be compassion. Love precedes life change. It does. We know this, right? You don't even need a Bible. Watch Disney. Beauty and the Beast! What's it about? It's kind of a political football lately. Not really getting into the politics of Beauty and the Beast. But what's the essential story? How do you make a beast lovely? By loving him first while he's ugly. Because love creates life change. Or if you didn't go see that one, Frozen! (laughs) How do you stop Elsa from being a destructive force with her unrestrained passion? By imprisoning her? No, by laying down your life for her and love thaws a frozen heart, right? We believe that. We think it's adorable. (laughs) So the next time you see a terrorist on TV, do you pray that they get blown to kingdom come or rescued into it? Because you read a Bible written by the Apostle Paul who was a religious terrorist and the love of God came to even him. Do you believe love will precede life change? Do you believe it will thaw a frozen culture? Do you believe it can change a country, a world? It did, and it can again. The question is, what are we gonna do about it? This is what our Christ has done for us. This is what we're meant to do for them. Let me pray for us. Lord, I wanna thank you that the message of Jesus is not work harder in order that God will like you. The message of Jesus is while we were enemies, Christ died for us. See, the truth is, before we ever become the good Samaritan, we have to realize we're the person beaten and bloodied and half dead on the side of the road. That's who we are. All of us have trespassed, is what the Bible says. We've gone places we should not have gone. All of us have been dominated by shame and by sin. We are the people on the wrong road, beaten within an inch of our life. That's who we all are. And yet Jesus Christ came to us. That's why we sing. We sing about a God who didn't say that's their problem. We sing about a God who came running. And while we were his enemies, he came for us that we might live through him while we were enemies, he died for us, that he didn't just give a great expense, he gave all he could give, living the perfect life we could not, dying the death we deserved, burying our shame in the grave, and then rising victorious and inviting us to join him in extending compassion to a broken world. God, I pray for any in this room this morning that doesn't know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that even now they can say, I want him, to heal me, bind me up, carry me home, rescue and redeem me. And you pray that to him right now. And then tell one of the pastors here, let us pray with you. And then God, for those of us who know you, the world will keep inviting us to outrage. It'll come tomorrow in our office, through our TV, through our phone, through a phone conversation And God, I pray as we look at that coworker, as we talk to that person in our neighborhood, we wouldn't begin to distance from them because they're the other. But we would ask you, what would it look like for love to leap across boundaries here? What would it look like for me to extend kindness here? What would it look like to look like my hero, Jesus, here? And I pray, Lord, Dallas, Fort Worth, This whole region would change because the people of Jesus love like Jesus. Make us like that, God. Ask Him that, would you? Just before we move on from this moment, ask Him that. Ask Him to give you a vision of your life this week, who you're going to be in the room with. Ask Him to show you the people you would normally avoid or gossip about. Who are the people you're most prone to condemn? Ask Him, what would it look like to love those people? What would I say? What would I do? Lord, give me a vision of what it would look like to enter that room in a different way, in a Jesus way. Ask Him to show you for His glory and our good. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.